Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Actung, actung, and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk inside the archives we're blowing the dust off some of our best old episodes to reshare with you all this episode is from when al and i met up with the lead singer of acdc the absolutely brilliant brian johnson Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk for a very, very special edition. Uh, we're not in Salisbury, we're not in Chiswick, we're not in uh, the Eagle's uh, Nest. No, we've come to Chelsea, haven't we, James? We oh. certainly have. And and what a treat. What a involved. treat we have for you now as we are joined by rock and roll royalty. Legend. Legend. Really? Yeah, oh, yes, a living, a living legend. When's um, he coming? <laughs> Um, from uh, some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with his work with ACDC. We are joined by Brian Johnson. Jo- Brian oh, Francis yes. Johnson, isn't that right? Lads, <laughs> 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 it's an honour to be here. I've been listening to you guys for a while, and uh, it's my favourite, most passionate thing is the military history. And you guys have enlightened me on a lot of things. Well, first of all, you got Mark Clark off the hook a few months back. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm, I mean, I reckon Mark Clark was a bit of a bastard really I don't think yeah. I'd have liked him but you can't you can't say that just because someone's a bit distasteful and you don't like them and they're a bit no. of an arrogant SOB yeah. that's not a reason for accusing them of being a bad general and actually what got me started was that walking across that ground from from uh, um, Cisterna all the way across yeah. underneath the Auburn Hills and I, I remember thinking god if I'd been Mark Clark I wouldn't really want to have no German 14th Army looking over me either but the main thing I was so happy to see you guys about was, do you know, uh, it was first of all, you know, I remember talking about British helmets. Now the, <laughs> they've, got, they've been getting on my tits since I was 15. Okay. And I, why did the English have the tittiest looking helmets in any army on the planet? And then I, I did like a that. bit of history and I looked and I saw some, you know, drawings of soldiers at a battle of Hastings and Tennessee. They were fucking exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yes. Well, yeah, 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 the medieval appointment time, it was very The bassinet, was it called? The bassinet? Yeah, or something, something like that, yeah. yeah. But, but, but Brian, tell us, why why are you fascinated by the Second World War? What 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 draws you? Because, you know, I, my father brought me up on it. Yeah. Thing. He didn't, he, you know, he was a child at the time. James saw a Spitfire fly over a cricket match. And yeah. Was, and was, why, are you, why are you interested? Well, you know, I was born in 1947. Uh, I missed the you know, war by a lot of time, but it's still two years from the end of it. No, like my pop came home from the army as a sergeant major. And, uh, and you know, uh, 
1947 I was born and he had already been, you know, when he got home, they just said, well, thanks very much for your service, now bugger off. Yeah. And he became a labourer in a local foundry. I mean, he was a little bit and a little bit... So from a sergeant major, which is top of the shop, really, isn't it, as an officer, you're, yeah. like, you're the boss, aren't yeah. you, at that level? Yeah, and he was pretty upset, you know, because he'd fought all the way through, and then he'd stayed on in Italy, helped to get Italy, you know, through the starving years. It was mm. bad in Rome. It was terrible, you it know. Was really Water bad. shortages, no bread, and me, my dad was part of it. And that's where the, the met me, mum and dad. But uh, you know, but at school, you know, he would never speak to me about it. You know, every time I mentioned anything, he was a very <laughs> strict man. Yeah. You know, he really was. He, in in the evening, you know, when I see movies now with kids, my, my dad with, with with the three boys and bed. There was no negotiation about this. Yeah. You went immediately. And you didn't say a peep. And that was it. And that's what he was like. But I remember going to school and going to the school library and, and I picked out this big book and it said the Second World War. And I opened it up and I was just going, my God. And I saw my first dead person. Yeah. In a, a photograph. Yeah. Of this grotesque figure lying there. And, uh, and you know, you didn't know what it was, German, French or English, you know. And, uh, and that's what got me fascinated, why these young lads that were, you know, it was the pits, it was the mines, especially for me dad, and I just showed you that photograph of yeah. how proud he was. It was probably mm. the best suit of clothes he'd ever had in his life, you know, and you can see he was just standing there proud, proud as punch to get away from that environment in yeah. Dunstan. The village of Dunstan. So he was, he was from a mining village in a, 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 a minor. We're surrounded by mining yeah. villages, you know. The, 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 you know, the, on the River Tyne, which was just basically a walk down there, the, the, there was the States, you know, where the, sh- the collier ships came in to get loaded and all came from on these railway lines. It was a massive hub for the world coal. And we were in the middle of it. Everything was dirty. Everything was black. There was a kind of peace day for laundry on Mondays. It was Monday. When, when they would stop the smoke coming out, you know, for, you know, the concert at and Steelworks would stop just so people could hang that washing out. Otherwise, it would just be filthy. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing it brought up. And, and, uh, and the thing is, I was almost... Uh, as I said before, humbled when I met his friends and all that, and I had these scrappy bits of berets, old battle dress, you know, all, you know, with the elbows rubbed, you know, and old pants and old great coats coming back with the hobnail boots from the pits. It was like it was like an army marching, but yeah. a real scruffy one. <laughs> and I felt really sad about this, you know. And I said, "That's just not right." Even at the yeah, yeah. you know the age of twelve or something, again, these guys. Just ten years ago, were fighting for their lives, you know, yeah. and saving us, and nobody gives a flying fart about them now, you know. Yeah. And it was just it got me then, and it got me fascinated about people wanting to fight for their country, that the professionals. And the next thing I really wanted to ask you was about the state of British generalship. You know, I often wondered where the world Horrocks came from. And uh, <laughs> and I think I found out, you know, he was always overcautious, you know, and all this. But when I read, you know, the book, 
you know, you know, for the North African, uh, uh, you, you know, when there was Wavell, and together we stand. Oh, Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was Wavell, you know, and then O'Connor, uh, and then he was replaced the Cunningham, and then there was Richie, and the first yeah. thing he did was retreat. Yeah, we'll be able to get out of here. Well, I think Richie's the worst of the lot. He's yeah, absolutely diabolical. Yeah. Absolutely diabolical. And the truce, the troops themselves, <laughs> my dad was there, was first, like you said in your book, that we're going, something's not right up there. Yeah. You know, somebody doesn't know what they're doing, and it must have been crippling for them. And now that they had this this German guy, oh, we all talk about Rommel, but there was other good lads there. Was it, is it Mac, Mackens? I forgot the other German. Oh uh, well, von Mackensen. He, he Mackensen. Met, yeah, in in well, actually, he got sacked for disobeying orders. Did he? Well, yeah, I, 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 I never liked him. No. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but but and then you did say, and I agree with you that Sir Harold Alexander, he was the man that actually tried to, you know, put this horrible jigsaw yeah, yeah. puzzle, you know, together. But well, it, I think the thing is, is that, is that the start of the war. The British Army is very, very small, and it's been very small in, in between the wars. And and it takes a little bit of time to separate yeah. the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. You know, it's until you've, you know, someone who can be a brilliant peacetime soldier, whether they're a private, yeah. you know, first lieutenant, general, field marshal, well, yeah. not field marshal, but a general, you know, they, they might be brilliant. But, but it's not until you test them in battle that you yeah. really know. Yeah. And what you see in the in the in the France campaign in 1940, you know, um, yeah. you start to see figures emerging. Montgomery, for example, Alexander, obviously, Brooke, um, you know, they they start to sort of emerge. But in North Africa, is a kind of rebuilding process. Yeah. And, and Dick O'Connor is brilliant as commander of the Western Desert Force yeah. in 1940-41. He's yeah. absolutely fantastic. He gets, goes and gets himself captured. Yeah. So he's out of the picture, ends up in Italy, yeah. then escapes in 1943 uh, and gets back and commands a corps in Normandy. Mm. But then you've got the succession of, of generals who can't quite bring it all together. And the early success that they have is not, not really replicated. And I think they all get themselves tied up in knots about... You know what Rommel brings to it is sort of tactical flair, but yeah. but, but that's not the, really the British way. The British way is is to kind of is to kind of build up strength and then boom. And and they're trying to kind of they just they don't quite know which way to turn. They don't they're trying to sort of ape Rommel, but but that doesn't really work because German way of doing things is different from the British mm-hmm. way of doing things. And you've also got this political situation because you've got South African troops, Australian yeah. troops. Um, Indian soldiers, Indian soldiers yeah. you know, and, and there's different factors, and you're trying to bring all this together and try and work out how to fight a mm. war. And Richie is the kind of that's the nadir, that's the the lowest point because they, he just gets stuck in what he what they really should have done in uh, the summer of 1942 yep. is build up to Brook, turn it into the lines of Torres Vedras because Rommel could not go into Egypt. Well, With that them. was there, That's because great, he, yeah. it would attack his supply lines. Uh, so he'd have to confront that, and he would never have got past the first post. Not a chance. They, but the thing is, Brian, they do at least sack the people who are rubbish. And so, <laughs> so you, well, you, you, you know what I mean? It's not like, it's not like a situation where, they, where, where Rich is still in charge by the end of 1942. They've at least, they're at least firing. Yeah. They're hiring and they're firing. What I would have done was, you know, build a 
trebuchet, you know, like a posh, <laughs> that's a posh catapult. And trebuchet those generals right into the midst of the enemy and let them get POW'd into eternity. You know, so, you know, so they just get back. But Brian, you Brian <laughs> was your father... I mean, just a thought, lads. But Brian, was your father conscripted or did he join up? Or did he he joined up. Right, okay. He joined up uh, for, you know, the Dunham Light Infantry and all of that. And uh, he was very proud of it, you know. That's so and, he should have been. Yeah, and, yeah, and um, you know, he had to go to, you know, the Capric, you know that. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Yeah. You know, and uh, it was that's a wind-bashed, godforsaken place. Isn't it, I know. It? Well, I was well, in the territorial. It always rains whenever I, you, were the, you were territorial. Parachute regiment, really? You weren't. I was. I've got me wings and everything. What? And, in, what? Uh, no which, way. Which, which battalion? Uh, I think it was called Three Para because it was territorials. And, and if there's anybody listening, going, you shout. No, it was, and it was in Gosforth. And it was, you see, I was in a little band. It was my first band. And all I could afford was this 10 watt PA system, which was shite. <laughs> and people in the bigger bands started to notice us. And I was in a, a band called the Gobi Desert Canoe Club, which I thought yeah. was dead funny. That's a funny name. It is funny. It's a funny name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, and uh, and and so uh, and and so you know, all these other bands were going. Well, bring your gear and let's uh, rehearse. Yeah, you know, and I because I had a little bit of a you know voice there. You know, going and then they'd come in and go, "Where's your PA system?" And I'm going, "Here it is." And they'd go, "Get the fuck out of here." Just, you know, uh, you need a bigger one than that. So I couldn't really afford it. I was apprentice at C.A. Parsons, you know. And I was getting like two shillings, two pounds, 17, and it was fucking scandal. <laughs> Joint when a friend said, I'm joining it to you, you know. And I said, what? What was the territorial army? You get paid. And you only have to go on a Wednesday night for drill <laughs> and marching and shit. And then every now and again you're going away for the weekend on a big on a bit of a hooli on the camp, you know. <laughs> oh, says I'll have a bit of that. Of course, me fucking sorry, stupid. Uh, me and George Beveridge, Jimmy Shen <laughs> and Jimmy Smith. Where, where, where's the closest one? Gosforth. So we're all going up to Gosforth. We're not even looking at it. It's got the parachute regiment. And I'm going, what, the parachute regiment? And I'm thinking, well, a little slight bruising and moments of sheer terror. But fucking that, that'll be all right. <laughs> and so we went in there. And I'll never forget, we signed up. And the officer was just going, yes, with mothers. What will help? Well, it's welcome. And, uh, and then we walked in the door and we heard the thumping of boots and the... <laughs> All of these guys, the sergeants came, and that's the first thing. Get your fucking haircut. <laughs> it was intense haircut that I'd never seen before. It was like personal. I was going, all of us. And he said, over there for your uniforms. And we all went there, and I've gone, wow, because the parachute regiment, I think, you looked like a proper soldier. You had smocks and... You know, like a fishing net round your neck. You know, them little, <laughs> yeah, just in case yeah, you're yeah, caught yeah. out. And, <laughs> and a red beret with nothing on it, though. You know, you had to earn your wings. And these dead cool pantaloon type, you know, look like, you look like the yeah. German lads de- defending Normandy, you, yeah. you know, in, the, in, in them ditches things. And then you got tie on putties. 
Yeah. Still. Yeah, yeah. From the First World War. Yeah. Tie on putties. Dude. Come on, quickly, there's an emergency. Hey, hang on, I'm a bit bothered with me putties. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid. And I'll never forget, I got them home and I was gone. And these smocks smelled of old battlefields, old hookers, old stains. There was, you know, old church halls that you can only find in a church hall, you know. Or, you know, smells like a vicar smock, you know, dangerous. So, uh, (laughs) sometimes I just open my mouth to change feet. And uh, (laughs) and, uh, so sorry with that. So, and, uh, and so, but I was proud and all that, and I thought, well, this is fantastic, you know. And uh, in it was, I made some great pals, and all of a sudden I said, right, you need to take two weeks off to go to basic training in Catrick. I went, so what? you went. Oh, shit. I, 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 all I want is a PA system. I, you know. I <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, honestly, and I went off oh, for fuck's sake, and I went, went down there for two weeks, and, you know, they might say it's the TA. Well, bollocks, he, it, it was real. Yeah. You know, the full word, and then I thought, I've done it. You know, I was great. And uh, and then he said, Now, when you get back to work, um, when you get back here, and two weeks because you're going to Abingdon and Oxford. I went, What's there? And he said, It's the jump school. Uh, what? You mean <laughs> I actually really going to parachute? I thought that was, you know. <laughs> no, it was. So we had to go to Abingdon, and we went through the whole training. And I did seven parachute jumps, you know. Uh, you know, first two are from a, a balloon. Yeah. It's a dirigible, don't call it a balloon again or I'll kill you. <laughs> right. So, and what we get in that basket, it's not a basket, it's a gondolier. It's a gondola. That's It's a gondola and that's what you're getting in. And, and all these new words. And there was five of us in a shot. I was terrified. It was worse than jumping out of a plane. You know, the first two jumps, yeah. because it was so silent. I mean, you couldn't hear. Th- well, God, I mean, I didn't realise birds farted. <laughs> you hear them. I'm telling you, uh, I was in, uh, and uh, and it was just so silent. And, and the jump master's going, "Why are you hanging under the basket for? <laughs> You're all going out." And I was number four, which I don't know what how that is. But the guy who was number one was just because it was just a door thing, and he went. And for two weeks, all over ten days, all we'd heard was "go." In at breakfast, they'd come on "go," and yeah, yeah, and you'd fucking jump. So it, it was clever because every time they shouted that word, you just went. And the, <laughs> and it come, he said "go," and I remember I turned and said "thanks." <laughs> and, not to this dear wire, but there was none of this. Jeremy knew nobody was, you know, everybody was just fucking hand. And uh, and before we went, I never forget we had were reserved parachutes on here. And the guy said on the way up in the basket, he said, "Don't forget, if you lose that, if you know, if your chute fails to open, because it was only eight hundred feet. Yeah. It takes two hundred and fifty feet for the." Shoot the woman, he said. And if a shoot doesn't open, pull your reserve. And remember, there's a ten shillings and sixpence fine if you lose the handle. <laughs> Fuck that shit. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but I jumped and I went, wow, this is cool. I really <laughs> yeah, like it. Cool. I couldn't wait to get back up and have another shot because, 
you know, the, uh, it was like free fun. Yeah. You know, and I was getting eight pounds a jump. I could see the PA system getting. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out, fucking Mick Jagger. <laughs> Brian's coming. But at the same time, I was just thinking, you know, I said, you know, these guys didn't have to do this. But I went on a few, you know, I went over to Germany, you know, keeping the West safe, yep. protecting you fuckers yep. while you were in your beds. I was yep. in the Black Forest, some fucking way. <laughs> you know, I'd lie in it, night freezing, because as yep. soon as we jumped, we were surrounded, which I suppose to be, and the enemy, you couldn't pick better, the Black Watch. The Black Brilliant. Watch were the enemy, and uh, with them, there was the French uh, Canadians. Who hit anybody? Yeah. Especially Geordies. <laughs> <laughs> People with a Liverpoolian accent, they just shoot on sight. Uh, but, uh, you know, so he built, you know, and, uh, but it was a lot of fun, and I made some great friends, and, you know, some of them I lost later on who really believed that there were warriors and joined up with that mad Mike Hawes, really? you, you know, mercenaries, and they yeah, went out yeah, yeah. and I never came back. Couldn't resist, you know. Yeah. Offered, offered, like, you know, what, 500 pounds a week then. It was just... So I lost, uh, I think, Jimmy, Jimmy Smith went. I'm not sure. Was it Jimmy Smith or Jimmy Shin? No, Jimmy Shane got knocked out by a bus in South Africa. But <laughs> never, I mean. But you, got your, but you got your PA, though. I got me PA, and, and it was and fabulous. Rest, but I couldn't, I couldn't grow me hair long, and I was in there for a while. <laughs> and, you know, and in them days, it was wonderful because the company, say, a Parsons, you know, would allow you to go f for two weeks, and it, they, they didn't mind, you know. They didn't say, well, you can't have your two weeks holiday. Yeah. No, it was, it was all... Seemed all fair and lovely, and yeah. and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I, you know, I would recommend it to a lot of people. I mean, yeah. I really would. Join the <laughs> army and have some fucking fun. You know? <laughs> Kill a few bad lads. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of sitting in your computer again, nothing happens. Yeah. You know. No, it's, it's just bullshit. You can't beat reality. Okay, we're going to take a break now. We'll see you in a tick. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. 
I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are, of course, talking to Brian Johnson. Um, if you hear any uh, sirens or traffic noise, that's uh, because we're right in the middle of central London, right by the river, and that's what we tend to get. So, so your dad, your, your dad volunteers. Yes. Uh, and in, in 1940, right? Yeah, I think it was, you know, or was it 39? Right, so yes. straight on the straight on the, yeah, the call 39. goes out. Yeah. And then, and then, what did he do? So, uh, where well, did he go first? Uh, Africa. Right. I think he went to Sheffield because he kept mentioning it. I think he went to Catholic something, and then he went to Sheffield, where there was a. I think they were gathering the troops or something, and I can't really. I cannot say anything specific because I could get it wrong. But they all gathered, and then off they went to North Africa. You know, yeah. and uh, it, that's why I think that he heroic. Not that they had a choice, but it was you know from the chilly northeast. Uh, to this place so alien and foreign. You, I mean, mm. flies and sand and, you know... A whole new vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. you know, things with two humps, or, 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 you know, and people sitting, I'm like, what the fuck is that? It's a camel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, honestly, they were just, uh, you know, and once again... You know the the rules and regulations were there all the time, and to the point where my dad said, if you know, when they issued shorts, it was a joke amongst the troops because they weren't short. They were you big fucking voluminous things. You yeah, know, yeah. English shorts. They were Bombay bloomers. Uh, yeah, but my dad said there was a time when you got fined. You know, getting your knees. Remember the old saying, "Getting that go on, so get your knees brown." Yeah. But if you got your knees blown, it was a court-martial offence. Yeah. You know, not, not a Yeah, you were allowed one. to be something. Yeah, and uh, and then when Montgomery came and he said, right, yeah, I'm not all the beers, because I didn't drink and I didn't smoke, so fuck you. <laughs> he said, after, you know, there was near mutiny, just, you know, the beer rushing, the God, you know, yeah. when they get the beer, it was the only thing that kept them sane. Stella. Stella. Not Stella Artois, it's Egyptian Stella. Yeah, Egyptian Stella. You still get it. You still get it out there. Can you? Yeah. With the flies in and everything? Yeah, the whole world. It's of camel poo. Do you know, I've got to tell you this lovely story, because I know in the desert there were so many regiments there, like you were saying, there was just a lot of brave men, the bravery. And, and you know, when talking about bravery, you know, the captains and the officers, the lieutenants, and those boys, I'm telling you, you know, when they were given an order from somebody that you knew were just going, are you sure about this? So could you, you know, because just do it, you know. And they did, knowing it was wrong and it was just uh, just pure bravery as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but, um, you know, the, uh, but the different ones were there. Oh, there's a lovely story and I love it. 
and there were about 15 years ago, one of the old guys from the DLI went down because he'd never been to see the remembrance service in London with yeah. the Queen, and he'd always wanted to do it. And he actually went down and he saw it, and and he went into a pub, you know, he's a bloody idiot, and he's just sitting there. Excuse me, could I have a pint, please? And this other old guy further down the bar said, "Are you Geordie then? Are you? Yeah, yeah, Geordie." He went, "I am." I am. He said, were you in the, the last one, were you? He said, oh, 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 I was. He said, what mob were you in then? He said, uh, Durham Light Infantry, the DLI. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. He said, I was, I was Coldstream Guards, me, I was. Finest regiment in the British Army, that was. All six foot. He said, when we marched, we marched as one man. <laughs> And the old guy said, when the DLI marched, we went, oh, chink, oh, chink. He said, who's the chink? And he's fucking medals. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a lovely story? <laughs> you can tell your granny that. Oh, well, brilliant. I've always had a massive soft spot for the DLI. Yeah. I was, um, uh, I, I, I've never really lived up there, but I was, at, I was at university up there, so I've always, I've always loved the North East. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, the more I studied the Second World War and, and the British part in it, the more you realise that DLI were absolutely everywhere. They were in the Far East, you know, <laughs> they're in North Africa, they're in Sicily, they're in Italy, they're in Normandy, they're in, you know, Northwest yeah. Europe, they're flipping everywhere. Yeah. My dad, instead of getting turfed out, he tried to get to the Far East. He said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get nowhere there, but bollocks to this, you know, otherwise I'm, you know, Rather than be a labourer, yeah, and I wouldn't take him back though. You know that guy. No. And then wow. he, he tried again for uh, Korea and all of this, and they were calling people up, and, and they said, "I'm sorry, you know, you're, you're a bit out of shape now." And because he was getting old, and then my dad was 27 when I was born. So by the time Korea came around, he would have been 30, yeah, 34, 33, 34, or something. And you know, but I know they were calling people back in Korea. You know that 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 was a that was a hell of a nasty situation yeah. that in Korea. You know, with the you know with the troops, you know, freezing to death and you know and just charging on. I forgot the name of um, this one particularly you know, American guy. He, you know, he, the headquarters was in Tokyo. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they were telling Stillwell, is it? The, the general who took the troops well, all the way up to the yard. Ridgeway was out there. Ridgeway. Ridgeway, Ridgeway uh, all the way to the yard. And hey, guys, you know, this is, you know, it's bloody freezing here, you know. And uh, and we're running out of supplies and all of that. And, of course, the British <coughs> and Commonwealth troops, they were, uh, you know, they were raiding the American places for clothes. Yeah. Once again, ill-prepared, you know, not the right equipment, you know, it's like sending the boys in Afghanistan. Here, I've got a brand new rifle for you, it's called the SU-80. It's brilliant. <laughs> and it was a piece of shite until <laughs> about 20 years later yeah. they sent it to Germany and the Germans fixed it. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah. embarrassing. Just the other day in the papers, lads. No, no. Hey, we, we need some new tanks. Oh, no, don't take no, it. Start on this. Well, well uh, <laughs> exactly. It, the, the ships, we need some ships. When we got it. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, can you back? It's always the same. You know, yeah. them poor guys in the Navy and the, the Air Force, the fucking Air Force, 
how many planes have we got? I daresn't. I daresn't but, ask. But, Brian, you, so your dad gets out of North Africa in 1940, does he? Or 41, something like that? Uh, yeah, well, he, he went right through the end and then he went straight to Sicily. You know, he, he thought he was going back to England. He, you know, he had yeah, to so, to tell us, so tell us about that. So he, he almost got, got home. He nearly he? got to Newcastle. They were on the train and they were all happy. They're so they'd come back from the Mediterranean, yeah. sailed all the way back to England. Yeah. And, and, At and the end of the North African campaign. Southampton or somewhere, too, I can't remember. And I got on a train... And all the lads are going, oh, yeah, da, 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 you know, and all of this. Mm. And, uh, and uh, they uh, the, the stopped in Sheffield or somewhere again with Falanafi, you know, a big sandwich, you know, corned beef sandwich and a mug of tea, you know, because yeah, they, yeah. they were hungry. Yeah. And uh, the MPs went, right, everybody out, walk across the platform to the other train, you know, not realising it was facing the other way. It was, and my old man was a sergeant, and he was going, hey, what's, what's happening here? And then the, the MPs went, we're going back. There's a big show on. And he said, wait, we're 130 miles from home. I haven't seen my family in two and a bit years, you know, on the plane. But I'm saying, that day, my dad said, 41 desertions. He yeah. said, Un, unheard of yeah. in yeah. the, the DRI. Just people said, bollocks to you. Some yeah. kid, you know, had had babies they hadn't seen, you know. Or, yeah. And they just disappeared into the fields. They all got caught, you know, they all got caught. And, you know, I went to think, but at least some of them got home. It was like the Great Escape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's their own yeah. Yeah. That's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? Because <laughs> I think they were withdrawn before the end of the Tunisian campaign because basically 8th Army came up the the, um, the east coast of Tunisia from the south, having gone yes. gone through the Marif line and everything, gone up right. through Wadi Akarit. Right. Then they go up north and they get a bit stuck at Infidaville, yeah. just sort of south of the northeast of, of Tunisia. Uh-huh. And then British First Army takes the priority. Yeah. And some units are moved over. Um, the final battle, for example, Ten Corps is moved over, which is Horrocks' lot. They that's, get moved over into First Army. Yeah. And that's the point where Eighth Army gets thinned out. And I bet that's the bit when they got sent home. Yeah. And then suddenly it's, oh, actually, we're going to go into Sicily after all and, and we need a bit more because one of the, more. Monty said we need to land with more than we've got so they were suddenly thinking crikey where do we get all these troops from and, and we haven't and, got them yeah and they were sending them to Greece yep. yeah yeah indeed. Where, so, were, so yeah. that's why they would have been called back at the last yeah. minute yeah. it's it's not kind of because uh, they yes. fought ahead it's it's more that they suddenly realised because the Italians had done quite well at Amphidaville in the north mm-hmm. northeast of Tunisia and given Eighth Army a bit of a brick wall to uh, come up against, Monty had suddenly thought, "Oh, hang on a minute, it's going to be tougher. It could be tougher here in Sicily than yeah. we think. We need more men. We yeah. need another division, which is why the 50th gets brought in." Yeah, that's brilliant. I'm pleased you said that because I often wondered how just in all of this melee and this madness that you know, my dad had a chance to get home. He wouldn't talk about anything, but. You know, but uh, you know, there's one bit I wanted to ask you. You know, it's, uh, because I, I said before that I would get so uh, so frustrated at the incompetence and all that. But I've got to tell you the story my dad told us once. He said, "You know, we just we had some success against the Italians when the Italians were there." And he said, "And the Germans were just arriving, but we didn't know anything." And he said, "My captain and I were looking over a map." You know, beside you know this little rock up ammunition cases and stuff, and you know, and he, he, he obviously had the pipe in his mouth, and he's going, "Well, you know, don't forget me, man, as well." 
Oh, <laughs> you know, Amidad just nodded his head as usual, and the end of his pipe disappeared. And he just went, oh, my word. And this voice just went, hey, Tommy, the Germans are here now. Keep your head down. And he said, <laughs> no. Oh, no, he said. That's brilliant. He said, keep your head down. We'll not do that again. And he, 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 what he'd done was warned them, said, the Italians aren't here anymore. This is us. And my wow. dad said, from that moment on, they were scared. I said, really scared. You yeah. Know, uh, because these guys were red hot, just fucking red hot. And I always, wow. had, a, always had a thing in the war. And I said, my dad always said, if it looks right, you can bet your boots it's right. And the Germans had everything that looked right. It, especially one of the things you, you know, James, you picked up when you said, you know, the Germans figured out that the 88s that they used, which were basically flat guns, said, hang on a minute, let's, you know, because the velocity is so great coming out of these, and we can turn them, you know, horizontal and fire them. And it worked superbly. And you said we had the same things, but not one English of you know. Of not until the end of the Tunisia campaign. Yeah, and I think, hey, why don't we do it? And, I mean, it's just incompetence, as far as I'm concerned. Just fuzzy thinking. A bit, a bit too much red tape on that one. I mean, there are something like 200 3.7-inch guns, if I remember rightly, yeah. in the Canal Zone and around yeah. Cairo, all of which are doing absolutely nothing, because it's all, you know, but certainly, certainly by the middle of 1942, it's yeah. not even for coming over. Yeah. And it's actually, it's, it's, it's my old friend, Francis Tuca, who's commander of the 4th Indian Division, yeah. and he's the guy who puts up the battle plan for the last great battle in Tunisia. Yes. Um, at the, I think it's the very beginning of May, and this is the Battle of Majerda. And yeah. no one remembers it because it was so completely successful. Yeah. It went so completely according to plan uh, that, that therefore everyone just seems it must have been a cakewalk. When actually it, the reason it went so well was because it was just so brilliantly executed. And one of the reasons they, one of the reasons it was successful was because finally they used 3.7-inch guns um, in an anti-tank role. I rest my case, young gems. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Bring next witness. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that chick, I remember reading about that, and uh, and uh, you know, if I might say, so, it's just that the thing is, when the, the British did get a success, it was always just sort of skipped, you know. Well, just like you said, it must have been easy. But the bravery, I mean, my dad, uh, the, the one thing after the war, he was in and out of hospital so many times uh, because of the, the concussion of a show. You know, they went out with his squad and they were attacked by a, a, a German half track and it had a 20 millimeter cannon thing on the top. And this was in the desert and they ran into this, this, this cave. And uh, my dad said, uh, when he did talk to him, he said, it was awful. They just fired into the hole, and I think all of his boys were killed. Yeah, no. everything. And all my dad had was a scar in between his thumb. I mean, he just there was nothing you could do. Just, these things were just bouncing around the walls, yeah, yeah. just killing people and all that. And my old man. But the thing is, the you know the gases from the shells and all that. Yeah. It, and, it, it, and up the thing, it went in. It was, so it, he wasn't wounded then. It was mm. two or three years later. It was. Just all messed up his stomach and his, you know, diet, you know, things. It was awful, and uh, it, it, but that was one of the after effects yeah. of, of that, you know. But um, 
it was, well, can uh, you imagine? You know, you think you, how how exposed you are to all those noxious fumes. I know. If you, if you spend four years at war or five years at war, uh, that's going to take its toll. And also, all those all those vehicles they all have yeah hearing, of course, as uh, well. And all those vehicles had asbestos and stuff, so all that's going into your lungs. And oh, all the I know. Grit and yeah. The dust and the everything yeah, else. It's not surprising they have. Yeah. You know, it comes back to haunt them. Well, we're going to hold it here because um, I have a sneaky suspicion we could talk about this literally forever. Um, so we'll be back with Brian in another episode, a very special episode. Part we have two. ways of making you talk. Part two. Achtung, Achtung, welcome to this very special uh, mini edition of We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland in association with Company of Heroes 3. Uh, Jim, I don't know if you're interested in the uh, Allied campaign in Italy at all. I don't know if it's a thing that's crossed your desk. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> Maybe. Yes, uh, I mean, I've got to say, Company of Heroes 3 is is kind of, it, it could have been made specifically for me, as we said, you know, the Deutsche Africa Corps in North Africa, um, land, landings and conquest of Sicily, and then before you know it, whoa, there's Italy, and, and we're kind of careering off from out of Salerno to Foggia, um, and, and before you kind of double back to Monte Cassino. So what's not to like, frankly? We've been joined by Steve Mele all the Away from Vancouver, who's executive producer at Relic Entertainment and who created the game. Steve, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you both. Uh, it's great to meet you both. Um, so tell us, you know, uh, how do you pick the campaigns? If Because if, Company of Heroes is it's a huge game, but, uh, massively popular. Um, you can play it on by yourself or you can play it uh, um, in multiplayer role online and all that sort of stuff. How do you arrive at a campaign to fight? Um, we asked that question of our community right at the outset. Uh, so Company of Heroes 1 was focused on the Normandy invasions. Uh, Company of Heroes 2, we focused on the, the, the Eastern Front. They, they love the variety. They want to see uh, different uh, factions. They want to see the different uh, landscapes and the different ways of playing and give it, giving you variety within that space. And the Mediterranean theater provides that. You've got coastal regions, you've got deserts, you've got mountainous terrain, you know, so we, this this was uh, urban areas. So, you know, this was a, an exciting space for us to, to different views, different gameplay, different factions. Everything was kind of packed in in the Mediterranean theater. And in terms of factions, if you look at we, we call them Duke forces on, on the podcast, Dominions okay. UK Empire. You've got yep. you've got Gurkhas in this game. You've got mm-hmm. as well as Tommies and. Aussies, you've got you've got people from all over the world, and you've also got all the right kit as well, <laughs> which, which, I, which I thought was great. You know, it's fantastic to see Stuart's um, Stuart tanks, and that's what I like because you know I'm, I am a bit of a geek about this stuff, and I want my details to be right. Yeah, so you touched on the um, the, the 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 kit and the 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 authenticity of, of what we're doing yeah, here. Absolutely, um, I wanted to talk. We we had a ton of fun with do with building that out for our game and, and doing the research and doing the homework within uh, you know the history books and uh, local historians with it, that in our neighborhood here, and then uh, uh, speaking to cultural consultants to ensure that the language we're using is accurate, even and 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 the the outfits and the uniforms, everything. So we had a ton of fun doing the homework and the research for that. We wanted everything to feel authentic, that we don't take you out of that immersion and that feeling of the time. But occasionally we've made decisions that 
are where someone who does know the exact fact would know that that specific upgrade on that Stuart tank wasn't there in that particular <laughs> battle. It, it shows up next, you know, next year or next month. Uh, and so we have there are fine lines there because we, you know, we're we have an upgrade tree, and so you you're able to upgrade your vehicles or your weapons or your units in your in your, and, and within a battle. But so we had this fine line between gameplay authenticity that when you're in there you feel immersed and you're loving it. Uh, and you, you you know there's nothing super taking you out of the the experience, but then at the same time there was that accuracy that where occasionally we broke a few uh, rules there um, or or historical facts just in order to get that gameplay experience through. Well, Steve, I can absolutely tell you that that I think I think most of our listeners will really really enjoy this. It's 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 just got the right level of geekiness to it and detail and facts and options. And and as as Al says, the fact that you've got kind of you know Gurkhas and what have you as well, I think it's absolutely terrific. The other thing is, even uh, of your listeners, your audience, if they are new to Company of Heroes, the franchise, uh, we've added a feature that I think uh, all our players, even people who have played it before, will enjoy: is um, the tactical pause. And what tactical pause is? So. For those who don't know, our game is a real-time strategy, and and you're on the field making decisions, capturing resources in order to fuel your, uh, you know, the, your war machine and get the, building up your uh, your troops and and sending them out on the field. It, there's a lot going on. You're you're looking from a, a above, looking down on the map, making decisions, uh, grabbing you know your vehicles and your your units, and you're moving them into uh, to, to places at the same time while the enemy is coming after you and those resources. So with tactical pause, it it allows you to press the space bar, pause the action, and you can then make all the commands and orders, and it'll show you a nice line of where your units are going to go, where your vehicle is going to go next, and if you want to throw a grenade at the end of that uh, movement, you can, and you toss a grenade, press space bar again, and the action takes off. And it, it, sometimes, you know, sometimes there's a lot going on, so this helps you take stock of the situation. Uh, grab a sandwich if you need to, uh, or and. and <laughs> <laughs> and then send it back into action. Do you see days gobbled up playing this, uh, or are you, are you a man of remarkable self-control? <laughs> <laughs> We've got a. It's a significant campaign. The single-player experience is over forty hours of, of gameplay wow. for players to get into. So wow. if you're if if wow. you know you can spend your time in there and uh, and really just get immersed and and uh, there's I, when I, again I I'm a proponent of video games in general and so I think there's great value in your dollar to have all that time and then that's just the single player experience if you want to continue to play against the the ai we have this you know we've built out this intelligent uh you know system in the background for to play against the computer and you can try out different strategies and uh we call that we call that comp stomp because the idea is that you're you know you're stomping on the computer over and over again (laughs) and you can join up with your mates as well and you play two you know you can play one v one and one against the computer you can play two v two three v three or if you had four of you, you'd come together and just have a laugh and, and beat up on the computer, and uh, it's a ton of fun as well. Uh, well, Steve, I, I've, we think it's great. We think it's absolutely terrific, and it's out now, isn't it? And you can play it play it today on your PC. Yes, you can. People interested, anyone uh, can go check it out at companyofheroes.com. It's available on PC and Steam. If you head there, you can find it. Fantastic. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Steve, and many congratulations. 